Welcome everyone to this episode of Broadcaster Hour. Roger Hoover with you from Tuscaloosa. Kyle Crooks joins me from Gainesville, Florida. And today we have our first guest on the Broadcaster Hour. He is Adam Amin of ESPN fame. He joins us from Chicago. Adam, how's everything going for you? Not too bad, boys. Good to talk to you. Good to see you. Good to hear your voices, all that. Yeah, we're just uh, trying to find a way during this COVID-19 pandemic uh, quarantine life, try to catch up and talk a little broadcasting. Uh, Just first of all, what have the last few weeks been like for you at home? Uh, I mean, quiet, obviously. I'm more fortunate than most, so you know, it is a luxury to be able to sit around and, and try to entertain yourself, but uh, all good. You know, just uh, it, this feels normal. This is a nice sense of normalcy to be able to you know, just catch up with, with you guys and, and just talk for a little bit. Adam, how much are you using this time to, to maybe watch old games that you've done, listen to old games that you've done, just try to... I, I feel like every broadcaster out there is just trying to find ways during this time to listen to themselves critique get better how are you utilizing this time yeah i actually i took a break for a while from actually listening but uh what's been nice is having these discussions has been great because this is the way that i feel like i've kept mindful about the profession and about the job uh the specific job of calling games because you know obviously this is a time where live sports aren't happening that's that's you know all part of the 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 process of getting back to some normalcy but being able to talk about these things and the philosophy of it uh that feels more uh like a good exercise for me personally it's been nice to not have to have to one thing i miss is like i feel like my voice isn't as strong as it was because you get so used to you know during the grind of the year and obviously you might get sick here or there, but like for the most part, you know, when, when you're healthy, you're doing a lot of games. You you feel strong at the end of the at the end of the spring or at the start of the spring, end of the winter, uh, and and I don't feel as strong. I just I you know not talking as much, not you know doing games. Uh, so that's been interesting dealing with that. But uh, on the mental side of it, just kind of thinking about the job, thinking about the philosophy and the approach to it, maybe some of the more nuanced things about it rather than the mechanics of it. Um, you know, kind of taking a second dive into why you do things or, or specifically how you might, you know, go about broadcasting a game or, or certain aspects of it. Thinking about those things and talking about those things has been a good exercise, I think, in the interim. For you, let's go back to the very beginning. Of course, a very good place to start. Uh, why did you start to like play-by-play broadcasting when you were younger? Who were some of your early influences that made you think about this as a career? Uh, I remember the first announcer automatically that I ever heard was was Harry Carey just because I grew up you know in the, in the 80s when the Cubs were uh, on WGN and you know Harry Carey was the voice I mean he was about as associated with a team as any broadcaster and mind you this is a guy who worked for the White Sox for a long time in some successful years uh, he'd worked for the St. Louis Cardinals in some very successful years so for him to be associated with the Cubs as strongly as he has been considering a lot of success at prior stops like that he was he was the Cubs to me he was my uh kind of conduit to Cubs games you know my dad who was a big fan uh was obsessed with the Cubs and uh, you know hence uh, I suffered for for as long as I did uh with with him for 30 years um but it was I think hearing his voice and associating that with something I enjoyed watching. Okay. So this is a, this is a job, but 
it never really clicked for me that this was a career. Like I got it was a profession. I got it was a job. I didn't realize it could be considered like your career at some point. So Harry Carey was the first like voice I remember hearing. Uh, Pat Foley was the voice of the Blackhawks for and still is uh, for, and forever. It feels like you know since my childhood. I'm sure a lot of you guys have grown up on PlayStation and throwing on a game and like you know messing around and describing it. That's what I would do with my NHL games because I remember hearing and watching Pat Foley, this voice that I associated with something that I enjoyed watching on TV and enjoyed watching with my father and my brother. Uh, just associating that with what this job was. So your first influence is Pat Foley, so that's why you do a bad nasally impression of him when you're doing you know play-by-play of NHL '94 on Sega. Uh, when I first got into the into the like art and craft of it, uh, you know, you start looking locally. So for me, it was Jim Durham, uh, you know, longtime voice, radio voice of the Bulls, and then more so for me was the voice of NBA on ESPN Radio uh, in the years that I started becoming a student of this. Uh, so he was a major influence. Kevin Calabro was one of my favorite NBA announcers of all time. Uh, Wayne Larrabee, who I think is still one of the two or three best football announcers on the radio to ever do it. Um, Pat Hughes locally, you know, comes on the radio. And then nationally, the Mike Tarikos of the world, Ian Eagle, who's played a very, very, very significant role in, in my growth and development in this in this profession. Uh, Dan Shulman, Sean McDonough, uh, you know, that list is, is fairly lengthy, uh, much like it is for, I'm sure, a lot of us. When you started taking your first steps in the play-by-play business, did you reach out to anybody who really helped you early on? Uh, Ian certainly did, and he and you know he took a liking to me and reached out. Uh, we uh, I'd been doing a minor league baseball uh, uh, season in New Jersey, and uh, Ian and his good friend Bruce Beck, who does a great job with NBC in New York, uh, they do they had the, uh, put together the sports casting camp for you know kids for a long time, and would come to the ballpark for the team that I used to work for, and that's how I got introduced to Ian, and, and we struck up a friendship uh, and and what I would consider a mentorship ever since and I'm sure there's you know plenty of uh, of announcers around the country who would say something similar about him or several other announcers just uh you know the fact that that he took a liking and, and an interest and uh and had some investment uh played a major role in me not only getting better at the job because of his you know kind of tutelage and and guidance but uh gave me more confidence as an as an announcer so uh to have that kind of swing how you do the job I think that was really impactful uh in particular early on I think I think that was really important um to have that type of influence right away so being able to reach out get advice get critiques and and again not the only one you know a a lot of announcers uh talk about this you know one of the great joys they get is you know hear you know hearing from younger announcers uh, whether they're reporters and you know, play-by-play announcers, anchors, whatever, and just being able to have some kind of pipeline to information or to uh, assurance, not not even necessarily like actual advice. Sometimes it's just the assurance that you're doing things the right way and not feeling like, well, this didn't garner any results. You know, this resume tape didn't get me a job, so I must be terrible at this, which is, I'm sure, you know, a knee-jerk reaction that a lot of us have dealt with at one point or another. Uh, to have that pipeline of advice and guidance, uh, more about the the mental, almost the mental side of it, and and the uh, the journey of it, uh, huge, huge for so many of us, and 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 for me for sure, with 
with a long list of people who are kind enough to open their emails or, or give me, you know, give, give a cell phone number or give an email address or whatever. You mentioned the, the confidence factor, and, and I had talked to a class the other day about just the roller coasters of the business. You're going to go through points where you are not confident in yourself and sure. you don't think the career is going to pan out for you. How did you push through those scenarios early on, say, pre-ESPN? Yeah. Uh, I didn't deal with it great, in all honesty, out of the gate. You know, there were there were times where I was very, uh, and, and I unnecessarily so probably, unnecessarily hard on myself uh, for things that oftentimes are out of my control. And I think that's what is hard to, uh, hard to learn as a young person, as somebody in, uh, you know, I would imagine their early to mid-20s who's, you know, out of school or maybe in their first or second job or trying to learn something. Uh, and to, to advance their career, uh, it can be significantly frustrating and you're looking for something to blame because your brain's trying to say, well, there has to be some justification for this, right? We can't be terrible. We can't be awful at this. So your brain is constantly looking for something. And if it doesn't find anything because it doesn't have control of any of these uh, aspects of the situation, it's going to turn turn on you for a second and go, well, this must be your fault. You must have done something wrong. Uh, and you get this like hit and you think, well, it, it snowballs. Well, this isn't going to last. Like, I, I'm, I probably picked the wrong path. Maybe I picked the wrong job. Maybe uh, I picked the wrong school. And, and, like, you start to go over all these decisions that you've made when, in actuality, you don't have control over the situation. And I think that a lot of people hear that, but it's hard to really put into words why that's important to avoid. And I think this is why, you know, you just have a tendency to beat up on yourself for things that are out of your control. It's not the right way to go about it. And it took me a while, and I, it took me some hard lessons of, of dealing with that. I didn't deal with it very well in particular. You know, I, uh, I, th I think the first couple of times I dealt with any type of adversity or culture shift or shock or change uh, in like lifestyle, I, you know, I, I would drink a lot. I was a freshman in college. I drank a lot. I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, I got my first job and I was sad about it. And I was isolated and lonely in a small town. I, I drank, and and I look back now and just tell people like, don't don't take it out on yourself like that. It's just not the right way to do it. There's so many other better ways to do it. And I think this is more more you know that that's more personal. I think uh, to be more pertinent and more universal about it, Kyle, I would say that understanding that. This is a, and I've been saying this probably a lot more lately than, than usual, but that it's a marathon, not a sprint. And I would tell people that in this time too. And I would have told myself that, you know, 10, 11 years ago when I was coming out of college and there was a recession and, you know, there wasn't a lot of faith in getting a job. You know, I, I was lucky to have an internship out of college with the minor league team I had previously worked for, which bought me some time over the summer. And then I had five or six weeks of unemployment, and that felt like, as I'm sure a lot of you understand how long five or six weeks isolated in your parents' house might feel, I was doing the same thing 11 years ago, although granted, much, much different circumstances, I understand. But just in terms of being in a, in a time where nothing is popping, there's no job, nobody's calling me after I've sent in a resume, you know, you that's not necessarily on you, you know, and, and I can look back and say, well, there's a reason that a lot of my friends didn't have jobs right away. There's a reason that I didn't have a job for a month and a half, which felt a lot longer. Like there are, there are a lot of external circumstances. That was 11 years ago, which doesn't feel like it, but it was 11 years ago. Think about how much time has passed. 
So if you're just looking at what I've done now or where I'm at now, and, and if you think I'm, I'm doing well, great, that's in the eye of the beholder. But if you think that this is a level I want to get to, look at look how long it's taken. This is a long, 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 hopefully long career for a lot of people. And I would say that to anybody in any volatile business, any business, any industry that has any semblance of volatility, which I'm sure a lot of people feel like a lot of industries have a lot of volatility right now, understandably so, uh, that this is a long, long journey. And to embed that in you as, as early as possible so that your passion is what carries you through you know, some of the lower times where maybe it isn't popping off as, as quickly as you'd like to, that passion is going to carry you in a lot of these these valleys of time you know, that, that we're all dealing with at various points in our career. And I think a lot of us are currently dealing with right now. And you get to ESPN at 24, was it, and back in 2011, um, there, there's got to be an inherent pressure, right? You go to the full-time oh, yeah. network, you get hired full-time by ESPN. Did you feel those pressures, the, the pressure to perform that and, and to show people that, yeah, I'm here and now I belong at this level? Uh, I still deal with imposter syndrome. Like, I, I think I still kind of have a little bit of that in me where I'm like, I don't know if I belong doing this. You know, I don't know if I'm as good. I've, and I'm, I know I'm certainly not as good as a lot of the people I work uh, not with directly uh, as play-by-play as -play announcers, but, you know, work around a lot of my colleagues. Like, I'm very, you know, aware, or at least and in my own opinion, and this is so subjective, which is another thing that's hard to battle, you know, when you're when you're putting together these ideas and philosophies. But you know, I, I look at Sean McDonough and I go, there's still so much that I can learn from watching him. I, I watch and listen to Mike Tirico and I and Dan Schulman and Beth Moens and, and you know, Dave O'Brien and the laundry list of announcers. Uh, and I'm just naming people that I work alongside at ESPN, let alone the number of, uh, of local radio and TV announcers uh, that do a great job, whether it's for teams or network or local or whatever it may be. So I, I still feel like uh, there's so much more to learn. So you kind of have this tendency to say, well, if I have so much to learn, then I must not be very far along in this. But I don't think it's the right way to kind of think about it. I don't think it's uh, it's a benchmark of knowledge. I think it's more process-based. And the more I've bought into that, that it's just about getting better. It doesn't have to be, you don't have to nail everything. You don't have to be perfect every time out. Again, easy to say when I'm in a position that I've been in for nine years at a network and all that, that's, I get that. But the more I've bought into that process of just focusing on the, the mechanics, the philosophy, the, and the execution of those ideas, and just trying to do it a little bit better every time, that's led me to feeling like I now, it, it still feels weird to call Sean and Beth and Mike and, you know, when I first started Brent Musburger and Mike Patrick uh, to call the Gus Johnsons and the Joe Davises and the Tim Brandos of the world to call them colleagues and feel like, hey, we're all together in this and our feelings about our skill level or our confidence fluctuate day to day, but we're all in this together and it feels easier to call, you know, to, to, to apply myself as part of that same category as all these really, really good announcers that, you know, we all look, you know, looked up to, you know, when we were coming up. Uh, it's still strange to say that, but I feel more comfortable with it now than I did certainly eight or nine years ago. 
Adam, in your college days of Valparaiso or just out of college, you were doing a variety of different sports. How much did that help you when you landed the full-time job with ESPN? Because basically you were able to tell them, hey, whatever you have, I can handle it. Uh, I, th- I think so. I think that was a major factor in, in versatility. I didn't know versatility was a thing like when I first started. Like when, And I'm sure you guys <clears throat> have felt the same way, especially working you know, out of the SEC. Uh, the passion for those sports you know, in the spring or in the fall outside of football and men's and women's basketball. I mean, you you guys come from, you know, have worked with or come from programs that have great, you know, baseball, softball, uh, volleyball, women's soccer, uh, you know, women's basketball. Like there's plenty of great sports other than football and men's basketball that people care about. That's half the battle, you know? So I think, when you're in college and you see like, well, here's all these sports. We, we're given the opportunity to call softball as the play-by-play and the color announcer and the studio host and the update anchor and the producer. Like we get all the, we, we got all these opportunities to work on these sports. We didn't get to call football games. We didn't get to call men's basketball games as the play-by-play announcers. And a lot of, you know, the, the some of the great things about working at an SEC school is, hey, I can go steal a booth or something, or maybe I can on the student station do the, you know, Florida, Tennessee game uh, this weekend and put that on my resume tape. But we didn't necessarily have those opportunities, but we could work on the network and we could do updates and we could still do play-by-play for all these other sports. So we didn't know that versatility was like a buzzword. We just thought, oh, the job is to do all these things. What are we doing today? Oh, we're doing soccer. Okay, let's do soccer. We're doing volleyball. Okay. So I was conditioned like that from the time I started working in college. So it never really, I never really knew that was like a thing until you get deeper in and you learn more about Ian or Tariko or the Kenny Alberts of the world who do a million sports and do them all really well. And, you know, what Marv Albert used to do when he was working in the 60s and 70s, where he, you know, in the same weekend, he'd call a Knicks game, a, a, a New York Giants football game and do the 10 and 11 o'clock, you know, sportscast on NBC that night. And would sometimes do all this in one single day. Like you, you just kind of understand that, oh, that's what versatility is. Cool, we've, we've been doing that for years. So uh, doing it in college, doing it in the two years between college and getting hired at ESPN, when you put together your you know your TV tape and you start to get some opportunities doing division two tennis and doing division two elite eight basketball and doing the division two women's world series and doing the high school volleyball tournaments in Illinois and Wisconsin and doing all these the these events to get you into the mindset of how to prep for all of them and then when ESPN says hey can you do the wrestling championships well hey I just spent six months in the state of Iowa on the radio covering high school wrestling yes I can do the NCAA wrestling championships oh you played volleyball and covered it for you know 40 matches in college yeah I'm happy to do that sport so all of that were all of those events were like little building blocks to build a foundation of i guess what you can call now versatility a word i didn't even know existed you know 11 years ago and that's got to be exciting too when you do have weeks where you're doing an nba game you're doing an nfl game college football just whatever the assignment may be do you like still switching between the sports and also switching between the mediums of radio and television yeah absolutely and 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 don't get me wrong at times i have in my career felt a little stretched because you can't devote as much time to a sport you know the you know a few years ago 
you know, working on college softball was my spring, you know, from 2012 to, you know, 2017, you know, for six years, six seasons, I was, that was my main sport. And for a few seasons doing the world series, uh, then I, I got an opportunity to do the NBA, you know, in, in 2016 and 17, and you start to implement that. And I felt bad. Like I couldn't give as much devotion to a sport that I love so much because this other sport that I've been with for 30 years of my life and, and I, and I grew up with now I have an opportunity to work in that league. So, uh, I felt at times it's, it's tough. It is tough. It's not easy. And I don't want to downplay that, but I do feel like the enjoyment that I've gotten. And I think the exposure to so many great coaches, so many different philosophies, uh, about coaching different sports coaching different genders if there is a difference in it or if or what the similarities are and what the differences are uh so you learn kind of the economics of all of these different sports you learn the the, the uh kind of gender uh differences between the sports in terms of what certain athletes go through whether it's economically whether it's socially uh, just learning all of these different things has been really awesome and the enjoyment i've gotten from that has, has been great. So that that's the sport part of it. The medium part of it is, I, I it's it's going to be tough. At some point, I imagine there might be a scenario where you have to give something up. I may have to give up some radio, you know, at some point down the line, uh, just because you know you, you also have to kind of schedule out your own time. But ra- being able to do radio for the NFL, NBA playoff games, Major League Baseball playoff games, major bowl games. Uh, top five college basketball games, uh, or just sitting, you know, in a, in a Dodger stadium in, in the middle of June, uh, or in San Francisco on a Sunday night, uh, and, and describe these places and give that imagery and do it in the in the form and fashion that I think most of us feel is the craft and the art form of it uh, on radio. Uh, that's something that that it, I wouldn't trade a lot of those experiences uh you know th- those those have been great to me uh you know that i have this this little collage up here of some some moments that I've, I've been lucky enough to enjoy and two of them are radio moments you know the iron bowl uh th- actually three of them three of them are radio moments. the iron bowl in 2013 you know to be able to have that radio call forever my first game at wrigley field was a radio game on, on a memorial day holiday and my first nba playoff game you know and, and i'm standing i'm sitting there their courtside and Steph Curry is our post-game interview and that's a photo I'll always remember and it's and it's that medium that got me into this business that gave me these types of opportunities that eventually lead to some tv chances um you know there's great things to love about both that's that's the other thing the camaraderie and the team aspect of the tv side uh the combination of having to match up your words and also to be more concise and which I know is ironic considering the answers I've given in this, but uh, to be concise and to match it up with what your director gives you and what the graphics people give you and what your analyst gives you and to lay out and to have all these different elements to it. Uh, there's fun on both aspects, uh, on both ends of it, in both aspects, but I'm glad that I've been able to split as much as I have over the last 10 years. And radio is really the, the foundation for for all of us like you said getting into this business most radio guys move on to television it's kind of hard to do it vice versa but 
I wanted to get into football play-by-play specifically because you, like many people, have been influenced by Kevin Harlan. You know, yep. a snap comes back, it comes back, belt high, and it's thrown to the numbers, a two-hand backpedaling glove catch. Like, I love that. Roger loves that. Yep. You And listening to your call, you do that really well, but you do it in a way where it's digestible for the listener. What do you? When did you take that tact in football radio play-by-play where you knew that's kind of the alley that you wanted to take it? Uh, I could probably uh, uh, guess the date, uh, in fact. I think it was uh, November 1st, 2010. Or uh, 2009, sorry. Uh, November 1st, 2009. I think I still remember the date. Uh, I think that was the first night I called um, a football game on the radio that actually was on the radio. Like, it was on the air. Uh, Believe it or not, I did not call any football games I called less than five football games when I got hired at ESPN that that's something that I, I still laugh at today because I, I feel like football has become a, a real strength and I don't know if I'm and again that's subjective very subjective but I, I feel much better about it now than I than I did you know late 2009 uh, that was the night I called my first game for KUOO Radio in Spirit Lake, Iowa, and that game was in Council Bluffs, Iowa, which is right across the state line from Omaha, Nebraska, so it's about a four-hour drive from where I was working, and after our game, I was in the car, my partner and his girlfriend had fallen asleep, and I turned on Westwood One, and Kevin Harlan was calling a Monday Night Football game, and that was, and I think it was a Jet game, and I just remember, uh, fairly certain Mark Sanchez was the quarterback, might be wrong, but uh, fairly certain, and the way he described everything you talked about, Kyle, like the way he gave you a snap, which I had no idea how to do, or I, I had no idea that was even like a concept or a philosophy, uh, to talk about looking older into the brights, you know, in, and not necessarily right in the play, but in the, in the recap of it, in at one point or another, saying something to add an, an, uh, an element or a layer to the call. That's the first time I'd heard anybody do it that specifically. Uh, Wayne Larrabee had been, uh, as I mentioned, is probably you know the, one of the three best or four best ever, and certainly a major influence on me. And I can tell how much Wayne and Kevin are similar because of that level of description. Kevin almost takes it to a different level. I think Kevin might be the most uh, purposefully descriptive play-by-play announcer of all time. Uh, and and it's a style that has bred a lot of copycats, and I'm, I could probably fall into that category. But one thing I realized, like you said, Kyle, the digestibility of it for me was harder. And that's a habit that maybe I I think I had to get into the habit of trying to copy Kevin. I think I needed him as a baseline to start. So at least I I thought, don't don't forget that one extra descriptor can make or break the absorption of that play to a listener. And. It doesn't have to be every snap. It doesn't have to be every play. It doesn't have to be the two-yard run. It doesn't have to be on every big touchdown. But to add a layer somewhere, and for me, it was trying to figure out what's the best order of things. That's that's the hardest part, I think, when you're first starting football radio play-by-play. Is And, and, and a little bit on TV as well, but the fundamentals of it for radio is trying to figure out what are the key, the key pieces? The key pieces to all these things are, all right, down and distance, formation, uh, what's next on the priority checklist? If I can give you first and 10 of the 25, I formation, backfield, Johnson the tail of the tandem, 
and I realize I have some time. It's a slower offense or whatever. Two receivers to the right, single wide left. New Orleans works in a 4-3 defense, two high safeties playing uh, five yards beyond the sticks. Is it necessary? Not, not, not really. Is it, it doesn't have to be. But if you know you have time, if you know there's a play, if, if it's early in the game, you're trying to give a sense of place, maybe you're not giving that descriptor in the first quarter. Maybe you're giving that in the fourth quarter on third down and 12, and you realize, all right, this is the time to, to add these fourth and fifth and sixth pieces to this puzzle that a listener is building in their head, maybe because the drama is bigger and the, the, the moment is more important. And I want the listener to be able to picture this big play. Third down and 13 might be the biggest play of the game. Let me make sure they can see all of it in their head. If it's the first quarter, maybe I'm saying first and 10, 25-yard line, Panthers in the I formation with McCaffrey the, the back. I could say it's a three-receiver set. I could say New Orleans is playing 4-3. I could say that the Superdome is, is at fever pitch on the first drive of the game. Or I can lay out and, and give the radio audience a sense of the crowd, too. Like, there are all these pieces and because the TV isn't there, because the producer isn't telling you what's coming, the director isn't giving you the pictures, because you are building it, you now have to take all these puzzle pieces and decide where do they fit best, if they fit at all. So I think that's where that balance has come for me, uh, to be able to, to, to say on a line drive pass, all right, Breeze back, five-yard drop, looks left, throws left, line drive pass, chest high catch at the 30-yard line outside the numbers by Thomas, He'll spin to the outside and step out at the 34. It's a 14-yard gain at a first down. All right, well, we gave you plenty there. And, and you can picture all that in your head. But maybe somebody for, for, for somebody on a bigger play, they're not listening as intently as you guys are. I remember that was one thing I learned listening to Kevin. When I was in the car by myself, I was intently and critically listening. So for me, when I hear all these descriptors, I go, that is awesome. That's amazing. How do you do that? And then in practice, or maybe as a casual listener, I'm not paying full attention. So when Kevin's voice goes up, or the announcer's voice goes up, I think Kevin Kugler does a very good job of this as well. When his voice goes up, now my uh, attention is peaked. So now I'm listening for what, and again, I hope this is the, the specificity you guys were looking for. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is awesome. Oh, yeah. I, I, I know. I'm, <laughs> sure, I'm sure some people are rolling their eyes in the back of their head. Uh, but when when the announcer's voice goes up now as a listener i'm i'm tuned in so maybe i'm not getting every piece that that the announcer is giving me so i can maybe catch them up on the back end if it's first and goal eight yard line new orleans looking to strike first uh and i give the descriptor of the formation I, it still may not be registering to the listener but if i say breeze steps back looking left fires back left corner now the listener is oh his voice is going up what's happening i might say michael thomas reaches grabs it for a touchdown. I didn't give you a ton there. I gave you enough, but I didn't give you a ton. But the listener is now in. Once they hear touchdown New Orleans, now they're thinking, well, oh, what happened? Well, I need to know what happened there. So now I can give that extra layer. Oh, Breeze sidestepped the, the defensive end, uh, moved around him to his right, squared up, line drive the pass to the back left corner of the end zone and a reaching two-hand catch by Michael Thomas into those white gloves in front of a one and three on his chest. Saints strike first at six nothing. The listener may have gotten more of that. Maybe all of it. The goal is all of it, but maybe they got more of that because you waited until they were really tuned in to give them that extra layer or two. And I think 
that's where, you know, to, to fully answer your question and come back full circle, that's where listening to Kevin, listening to Wayne, uh, li- listening to Ian, you know, doing the Thursday night games, it, it kind of gave me a better sense for what my balance was and where I wanted to be and maybe where my pieces best fit. And by the way, it didn't all click on that November night in 2009. It took <laughs> years, and it's still something I'm working on, to learn what's the best piece of information at the best time given to a listener who may not be fully engaged at every single second like you are or you are or I am when we're listening, the three of us are listening to an announcer on the radio critically. I got to go back and listen to that answer over and over. That was that was great stuff. And and then you yeah, go from I that. Hope, I, hope, yeah. I hope that's what you guys were looking for. I, it's a long answer. And there's a lot of like, <laughs> that's what we want. <laughs> the, yeah, that's that, that's some of the philosophical stuff. That, and that's how it formed for me to try to learn all that. And then you go from that to, you know, the rocking chair rhythm that is baseball on the radio. Who did you grow up? Well, you, you mentioned Harry Carey, but yeah. who were some of the others specifically baseball that you grew up listening to? And how do you try and develop that rhythm? Because it's more of a soothing pace. Your voice is a little bit different on baseball yeah. than it is on football. How long did it take you to find that right balance of what you needed for baseball on the radio? Uh, several years. And, and really, the the only thing I think that you can do for it is reps. And, and, and I'm sure that's not the only way, but it's such a tried and true way to really learn the job, to really learn the, the machinations and nuances of it on the radio. Uh, and, and universal things, too, that can apply to other sports. But so much so, obviously, uh, is specific to baseball on the radio, uh, to do it every night. So, you know, to do must have been, uh, uh, I'm trying to think, out of a 96-game schedule. I'm sure I did probably about 70 out of 96 games for a couple years doing the Northern League. Uh, and uh, with the Gary Railcats uh, to do 140, 150 games a year for the Somerset Patriots for two years. That, I mean, it's a lot of reps. Like you, you can't recreate that nine innings a night by yourself for the most part. Not all, all the time, but uh, for a lot of the time, you know, a good chunk of games you're doing by yourself. Uh, I did the middle three innings in Gary uh, every night, and then. I would do all nine in Somerset as the, as the number one guy. So to have that many reps, to have that many innings under your belt, there there's only so much you can get from just thinking about it and watching it. To do it is really where you get the most uh, kind of education, and it's hard to buy those reps anywhere uh, at that volume and at that frequency. Uh, I would say that Pat Hughes, obviously, being the Cubs radio voice, uh, when I first started in Somerset, obviously we're in New, Jer- New Jersey, so you could hear John Sterling, you could hear Howie, uh, Howie Rose. Howie has been a, a huge influence on me just in those two years of listening to him a lot. Uh, I would sit in the booth after being done with games in Jersey at you know 10 o'clock at night, and the West Coast games are, are starting up. So I'd sit in the booth and do notes and, and game notes for the next day and do the recap for the night. And I just put on Vin and listen to his first three innings when he would do the simulcast at that time. At that time, Vin was simulcasting for the first few innings. So to kind of pick and choose what you learned from them was huge. John John Miller, obviously massive influence. Gary Thorne, believe it or not, on the radio because he was doing Sunday Night Baseball. Uh, Dan Shulman, I took so much from. And then I think the two biggest influences probably are John Miller and John Chambi. Um John Chambi in particular has basically taught me how to be a radio play-by-play guy for baseball, which in turn has made me a better TV announcer as well. 
And his biggest thing was, uh, and it's and it's honestly the thing that changed my life. Uh, and he learned it from John Miller. There are two. There, there's a couple notes. I think this will really help a lot of people. There are a couple things that I think you have to understand. There's two modes to the game in baseball, and you can call it a couple different things. It's leaning forward, leaning back, shoes on, shoes off. I think those are like those are the kind of ways that you know. Joe Davis and Wayne Randazzo and, and myself and you know a lot of guys that, that have leaned on each other over the years have kind of leaned on each other for advice. One of the things we talked about were take your shoes off in the middle of the fourth inning. Like like are you relaxed? Like I not not you don't have to literally do it, but like are you relaxed? Are you in a mode where where you can tell a casual story in a four nothing game in the fifth inning? Uh, are you do you have the ability to do that? And do you have the ability to shift your tone? When two runners get on base in the seventh inning in a 4 nothing game, and now the tying runs on deck, can you build that drama as well? And can you do it seamlessly and weave that from that casual story that you were telling? So it's those two modes. Uh, the other two, uh, I would say, are uh, leaning in and leaning back. There's a lean-in moment and a lean-back moment in every pitch in every game. And you can do this for softball as well. This works college baseball, minor league, major league. Uh, there's a lean back and a lean forward moment. The lean forward moment is the pitch. And the lean back moment is everything else. Uh, and I guess the lean forward is the pitch and the result of the pitch. Everything else is leaning back. And John Miller would say, can you balance those two tones in the middle of the pitch? Uh, Kyle Crooks out of Jacksonville, Florida. Good year last year. Hit 323, 17 home runs. Looks like a first pitch fastball strike on the outside corner. Kyle was telling me the other day, we were sitting at the batting cage. He's had a great story. He was telling me about his mom, about this uh, this great thing that she makes uh, when she when she's cooking. Here's the one outside. And then you lean back, and you're telling the story. And John Miller, just the way he says that, and obviously you can kind of picture John saying it, that, that, that up and down, you know, sing-song cadence he has. Uh, it, that's very specific. That is like dead on specific. Like you're leaning in to give the pitch and the result of, and then you can lean back out. And the other bow to that, that, that John Chambi taught me, that Boog taught me, was that's how you do it when you're at a baseball game. When you, you're sitting in the right field bleachers or down the first baseline with your buddy, oh yeah, well, what did your girlfriend say? Oh, that's cool. Uh, what, did, what did her friend say? Like, when I looked back this way, we're looking at the pitch. Maybe it's just because we don't want to get hit with a foul ball. That's fine, too. But we're all paying attention to the pitch because maybe that's the one he hits out. So you can never forget that what's happening in front of you is still the most important thing. I think when you're a young baseball announcer, you have a tendency to be so wrapped up in the idea of, holy shit, how am I going to be able to fill three hours by myself? How am I possibly going to do this? And then when you realize that what's happening in front of you is still going to dictate pretty much everything else, that will help you so much more significantly. It changed how I prepped for games. It changed, more importantly, how I delivered and how much I delivered prep-wise during, during a game. And it made me realize how important documenting the game is. You still have to say, here comes the pitch. And, and, and that was the, 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 the biggest lesson Boone taught me was you have to respect every pitch because it may be the one pitch in the game that really impacts it. And it may come in the second. 
It may come in the seventh. It may come in the ninth. But that doesn't, and it doesn't mean you have to yell louder or be, you just have to be engaged on every pitch. So it has to be. Uh, actually, I have a my first MLB games uh, scorecard is right here. So I'm just going to use this. As, uh, so Joe Kelly is facing Jason Hayward. It's Cardinals Braves from 2013. Here's Joe Kelly, right-hander. Jason Hayward, lefty batter, will stand in. First pitch on the way. You're you're not only respecting the pitch you're giving the space for the pitch to happen so think about how you're pacing that here's the first pitch outside for a ball one and oh on hayward hayward so far hitting 278 eight home runs 15 uh 52 driven in here's the one up outside for a ball two and oh jason hayward last night two for four with an rbi stole a base here's the two up swinging a foul back and it's two and one so what I'm trying to tell you here is that if you're a listener and you're trying to stay in the rhythm of the game, because that's the most important thing. Baseball's a rhythmic game. You said it right out of the gate, uh, the, the kind of rocking chair pacing of it. You're trying to give every pitch its space and its respect. And what that forces you to do is to spread out your prep a little bit. So you may not get to that story that you got in the batting cage right away in the first inning. And maybe that's the only time you feel confident using it because he has a story about that pitcher that they're going to face, but that pitcher is only slated to go four innings today or, or, or two and a half innings in a, in a rehab assignment. So maybe you can only use it on that one at bat. That's fine. Maybe that it's more pertinent there, but you'll know that going in and you'll say, all right, I'm going to make sure I give this story on the first at bat and we'll try to spread everything else out. I'll go back to the numbers. You know, I, I always had a, a process where the first, at bat, I just wanted to give numbers. I just wanted to give base, and, and not overload, but basic stuff. 275, eight home runs, 27 driven in. Really good speedster, 20 steals at the top of the order. That's it. And then I let the at-bat kind of play out. And I'll describe the player a little bit or give like a sense, especially if it's the first game of a three-game series. You have to think about these things in that, in that respect as well. But what you're doing is respecting every pitch. You're giving space and documenting the game. And that allows you to spread your prep out, take some pressure off your shoulders. You don't have to know every single thing right out of the gate. You can let the game dictate how you announce a game. It'll help your pacing. It'll slow you down. Because you can't be in the – what I cannot stand sometimes is to hear an announcer, especially on the, on the radio especially, but it, the TV announcers are guilty too, to talk all the way through the pitch with no regard for understanding that something may happen there. And it's not going to happen every pitch. You're not going to respect – 250 to 300 pitches every single night it's hard but the goal should be to at least give the space for all those so that you're prepared for the double down the right field line and you're not in the middle of a story when the pitch and the swing are happening so it's not kyle told me a great story about what his mom said the other night and he swings and launches one to right like there is no rhythm there you're surprised all of a sudden by what's going on i don't like that and Boog, who got it from John Miller, they are two of the best in the business at pacing and rhythm when it comes to baseball on the radio. And I think both of them, when they do do their turns on TV, which they both do, uh, they have that same pace. They just don't prescribe every pitch. They might be telling a story about Joe Kelly. Joe Kelly's arm slots are a little bit strange these days as he's going into the windup. And instead of continuing the story, he'll just say, it's a little bit strange these days watch the pitch, say it gets fouled away. They may He may not say that the pitch was fouled, 
because you can see it on TV, but then he'll pick up naturally in the story. So these rhythmic things are the things that have probably helped and shaped and molded me the most out of anything I've ever heard as a baseball announcer. So hopefully that helps you guys, and I think that help that that'll help a lot of young people who have this weight about the prep on their shoulders. You should still prep, be ready to go, but this will help your pacing and spread your prep out too. Adam, I think when a lot of people listen to you, whether it's on television or radio, they say, wow, he's got great pipes. What's your approach to voice? How have you developed your voice over the years in this business? And whether it's on television or radio, how do you are you consciously thinking about voice as you're calling the game, making sure you punch different things in your call, or just how do you approach a voice as a whole? Yeah, I think um, coming in, knowing the rhythm of the game and trying to establish your rhythm of the game as soon as possible. And you can't always do that. You can't always dictate that. Uh, the game is often going to dictate that. So if I'm, I'll try to give you an example in, in three major sports. In, in baseball, if you're doing a game with David Price, it's going to be a lot different than doing a game with one of my favorite pitchers growing up, Greg Maddox. Uh, if you want to go more modern, even a little bit more, uh, Mark Burley. You know, like the, those are guys that got the ball through it, got the ball through it. They're just throwing. David Price takes 25 seconds on average in between pitches. So you've got to know that going in. you got to know that. And if you don't know that, you should be cautious about how much info you're giving until you know what the established rhythm of the pitcher is. The pitcher will dictate oftentimes what your broadcast will sound like. If they move fast, you're not going to have as much time. If they move slow, you're going to know that I have 15 more seconds than I would or 10 more seconds on uh, in between the – uh, pitches with this pitcher than I would for that one. So knowing the the nuance and, and rhythm of, of the pitcher will help you dictate that in baseball. Uh, so your voice will match that. Uh, I think you know voice and rhythm are are very important to try to keep in sync. If the rhythm of the game is hot and you're you're on the radio and it's the fourth quarter and you're trying to match that call, okay, well your voice is going to get you know you're going your your voice is going to go up on a lot of moments. So maybe you need to pace those out. Like I, and that's been the hardest thing for me to do, as a, in particular as a basketball announcer on the radio, especially doing like these playoff games where the intensity is ratcheted up. It's so much fun. Like you're having a blast. So naturally you're going to get more excited and, and, and kind of let the rhythm dictate. That's where you have to be able to punch back. You have to be able to know, all right, this dunk in the second quarter may not be the only one we're going to see. So let's hold off on the on really getting up on some calls until we know we're going to be in the fourth and this might matter a little bit more. Now, listen, when Jason Tatum dunks on LeBron in the conference finals, that's that is a highlight that I'm going to have for the rest of my life. And that is a moment that Jason Tatum's going to have forever and we as NBA fans will always remember. So yeah, my voice got up on that and I can justify that. Uh, but on a three-pointer to go up 42 to 39, with six minutes to go in the second quarter, you you, you got to know that that's not the biggest moment of the game. Um, and I think for football, it, so much is predicated on the tempo of the offense. So much. It, it's just if you've got time, great. Uh, congratulations, you found a mirage in the desert during college football. If you're doing the NFL, the the you know unicorn in that sense is like the Chip Kelly Philadelphia offense, where they're trying to get a playoff every 12 seconds. That's rarer in the NFL. So you have more time in between plays. Uh, so I got to know, uh, or uh, sorry, the, the difference between college and the NFL is uh, the 
speed of the play itself. The passes are faster. They're, they're zippier in, in the NFL. Guys cut harder. They move faster. They tackle harder. It just is what it is. It's the bet. It's college all-stars and the elite of the elite on, in the NFL. So it's going to move faster. So you, go, you also can't get too caught up in the rhythm of it. That's why, uh, again, uh, I, I listen to Wayne Larrabee, Kevin Harlan, the way they handle the tempo of the NFL compared to what guys in college have to do where the pacing is faster, but the plays are slower themselves. Uh, so your voice kind of has to match that. If you're doing spread offense on the radio, there's going to be a lot. There may be a lot of points. If you're doing Oregon against Arizona, you know, seven years ago, there may be a lot of points. If you're doing LSU Florida this year, there are going to be a lot of points. If you're doing Tennessee Florida from a few years back, maybe there may not be as many points. So knowing that and having an idea of that will help you dictate what the rhythm of, of your call is, which then dictates how you kind of should know to use your voice. If you know you're only going to have a, a handful of big moments, you know it's okay to punch a little harder when it's 7 nothing in the third quarter because it's the first touchdown of the game and you know that points are at a premium. If it's 52 to 45, you know, if you're if you know in the second quarter there's going to be a lot of points at 21-14 in the in the first or the you know late or early second quarter, all right, let's 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 not blow it all early. Let's know that the game is going to reach an apex further on. Television broadcasting is such a team sport. It requires the entire team to do well to have a successful broadcast. As the play-by-play broadcaster, just how do you see your role in making sure that you can help everybody else out, whether it's producer, the director, your color analyst, just what's the best way to be a great partner in television in that role? Uh, I, I think it's adapting, you know, being adaptable. Uh, one thing I feel like uh, I... I, I don't know if I have an identity as a broadcaster. Maybe I do, and, and I'm sure there are certain uh, things that I do often that maybe people associate uh, with with the broadcast that I might be working on. But I think my identity changes a lot depending on who's sitting next to me. Uh, I think my personality may shift a lot. Maybe not identity. Maybe that's the wrong word. Maybe personality is the right word. Uh, it shifts depending on who's next to me. Rebecca Lobo has a very, like, motherly but biting sense of humor so i know that i almost feel like a little brother uh to her so our our banter may reflect that uh if i'm working with pat mcafee and matt hasselbeck guys you know pat who's the same age matt who plays a little bit younger uh than than the 44 years old he is uh if i'm working with those guys my references will be different my looseness might be might be a little bit um uh, more on display. I might be a little bit looser with them. Uh, let, you know, be a little bit more uh, willing to say or, or go uh, take the broadcast in, in different directions because of those those, those people next to me. Um, the skill set that the analyst has. All right, if they're really good at replay, well, the producer and I and the director all want to know that. Hey, we've got a great telestrating analyst. I worked with Dusty Dvorak a few years ago, uh, who was who was only in his second or third year doing national games at that point and hadn't worked with a telestrator and starting like week two that year would come in and drill on the telestrator and man by week four or five hey i go to my producer kim belton and say hey we got to get this guy let's telestrate more on these broadcasts and that is i think important in, in especially when you're working with less i would say less experienced uh analysts um you know, Mac Brown 
in 2016, Dusty in 2017, uh, when he was in his first couple of years. This year, working with two rookie full-time analysts. Um, you know, I, I think I had to do uh, a lot of reconnaissance and to learn what they're good at, what they suck at, what they're not comfortable with, what they want to get great at. Where are you going to be at your best? And how can we shape the broadcast, like the edges of the broadcast? Like that may mean that may dictate how we go to break. Uh, oh, we got a, we got somebody who feels like Doris Burke loves going to break. She always has like a cool line to say or like she, she's got a great enthusiasm going to break. Uh, that's fun to listen to. Uh, all right, let's make sure I set Doris up as much as possible going to a, a timeout. Or, hey, Rodney, tell me what's coming up when we have our rollout going to break so that I can set Doris up better. So that's me knowing what my analyst strength is and then trying to think ahead about what's going to make going to break a little bit better. All right, Doris is great at going to break. I'm going to set her up with a line about Kawhi Leonard. Um, you know, I've got a, uh, you know, I know we've got an emotions rollout. All right, we're going to show shots like close-ups in slow motion, end of the third quarter, we're going to the fourth. Adam, you narrate this. Okay, so now communicating with my producer, hey, can you give me a sense of what those shots are? Oh, it's both quarterbacks, then both coaches, crazy fan, mascot, go to Brave. All right, if I know that and I've communicated that and I've gotten that information or my director or producer has gone out of their way to say, hey, Adam, here's what I got coming up for you going to break. Third quarter, give me a lot. Give, you know, give me some drama going to break so we can set up the fourth quarter. That communication has now smoothed out a rough edge of the broadcast. These aren't like essential you know, necessities to the broadcast, these like fancy looking rollouts. But it sure as hell makes it seem bigger, looks good, and it sounds good when you've got an announcer, an analyst, or play-by-play announcer that has a strong setup going to the break. So having as much communication as possible to predict these things, uh, to be ready for them, and then to be able to smooth everything out, uh, you know, those are just a couple of examples of what you can do uh, to be as, as good as possible. Know with the director, you know, setting up shots with your director. Hey, out of the fourth quarter, what do you want? Oh, can I get it or, or request? Like I've requested, hey, uh, if we got nothing else, start of the fourth quarter, can I please get a shot of both coaches split screen? I have a, a quick story that I want to tell. They do that on Sunday Night Football and NBC all the time. They tell 10 to 15 second stories, and they're doing that in the, in the middle of breaks, and they've got a laundry list of them. You don't need a ton of real estate and a ton of setup to do a great to do great TV. Hey, uh, we're back in 30. Do you know what you want to do? Hey, if we got nothing else, I'd love a split screen of the coaches. I've got a story about how they went fishing in the offseason, and now they're coaching against each other in the fourth quarter in a tight game. Like, having that foresight, having a pulse of the broadcast as a play-by-play announcer as much as possible, depending on what type of analyst and, and, and what their strengths and weaknesses are, knowing all these elements will help you execute them better. Yeah, that's the one thing that I learned moving to TV is that talk back is a weapon that you can use. Yeah. And, and I, I worked with Mark Wise once and, and he literally slammed it every second. He's just talking to producers, setting things up. But in terms of stand-ups, because that was the one thing that I kind of struggled with moving from radio to television and, and getting comfortable on camera, bringing in a broadcast, setting up your analyst. How much do you still rehearse those those uh, stand-ups when you come on camera 
And in terms of just the back and forth you have with an analyst in those types of situations, how long does it take to get comfortable? Because it just doesn't, it's not a comfortable scenario, especially yeah. when you're a radio guy. All of a sudden you have this camera that's peeking on you. You're only on camera for about a minute. So how do you get to that point where you feel comfortable in those situations? Uh, it's a, and it's, it's taken a long time for me to even get to a point of comfort. Um, it, you know, those first years, that, it's the hardest thing. I, I think it's one of the hardest things, which, by the way, I think you have to get it in your head that this is two minutes of a two-hour, three-and-a-half-hour, two-and-a-half-hour window. Like, that's it. And I understand, like, you're presenting something, you're trying to build it, but the more you can get the pulse of the event itself and then be able to bring that as naturally as possible. If it's a hyped-up atmosphere, it's okay to get kind of caught up in it and give a little extra voice on, on the open, and then when you come on camera, you better reflect that, too. You better reflect the mood that you're trying to deliver. If you're hyped up, and that's how I am when it's a big crowd, big college football game, important basketball game with a great student section, uh, championship-level event, like, you want to deliver, like, the importance of that in the voice. You can't come on camera and then just not look like you you sounded. You can't come on camera, or you can't be off camera talking about LSU Clemson, national championship game. We are so pumped here from New Orleans to bring it to you. And then you come on camera and your, your shoulders are slumped and you're, you're not bringing that same energy. You, you want to match what's around you, or if you're not going to match it, dictate what's happening around you. Like if there's an intensity there, if you're showing shots, you know, of the two quarterbacks in the locker room and they're looking focused, if it's Joe Burrow and Trevor Lawrence and they're both like stone cold, deliver that. Joe Tessitore, you know, is, has been uh, applauded in his college football career in particular because the atmosphere lends to that about kind of building drama with 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 less wording, but more inflection and intonation and kind of the old school 1970s ABC way of how Howard Cosell would build this drama for you can still use elements of that and still feel feel like you're doing the job justice. How do you get to that point where you feel comfortable? I think is a question that a lot of us have to battle with. Reps is one thing. You got to do it. You got to do it enough. You got to be on camera enough to feel like you can do this. And I think the biggest thing you have to learn, you're still a human being. You're still a person on camera. And you, you, you can probably act like it. Like, I, I always felt a little uncomfortable seeing announcers when they come on, if it's not a one shot. If they're, if they're being talked to by an analyst or they're addressing an analyst, why wouldn't you, why wouldn't you look at them? And this is one reason I don't like scripting my opens. I, I have an outline or I might have a couple of bullet points that I'm gonna hit. I don't script my opens because I, I don't, feel like I can engage with the script itself, wherever it is, if it's on the ground or if it's up on the camera, wherever it is, uh, I can't engage with the script and my analyst at the same time. Because then you get it, because then you can tell who's scripting it. And that's not a bad thing. If you want to script it, script, I'm just saying this for me. But I've seen people on camera where they'll turn to their analyst, and I guess it's the guitar in this case. I'll turn to the <laughs> guitar and say, uh, you know, they'll they'll look at the at the analyst, but their eyes will still keep going back towards the camera, almost like they're staring at it because they might be looking at a script, and that's okay. But I like looking at the person that I'm talking to because that's what you do as humans. Like this is how we interact as people, and I think that's a great starting point to getting comfortable on camera is to just recognize that 
if you just pretend that it's three people having a, a conversation and one of them is not saying anything, you're speaking to your buddy. If you two are talking to me and you haven't seen me in a couple of years and I ask you a question like, hey, tell me about X, Y, and Z at that, on that vacation. And you guys tell me about the vacation you know, you guys took. Like, I'm just going to listen to you and you guys are going to look at each other when you have something to say or you're asking him a question. Hey, remember when we did that? Hey, Kyle did this hilarious thing. Remember when you did that thing and then you look back at me for the reaction or then when Roger starts telling the story, you're looking at Roger and we're both looking at If you kind of think of it as that, yeah. it's just three people sitting in a triangle talking. It makes things a lot easier to deal with. And I think it makes it a more human experience in a almost robotic setting. Here, here are your two announcers. Here is the camera. Yeah. Here is my partner. Here is the game. Like it's, it's easy to get caught in that. I think if you think of it as more human experience and as a human conversation, it makes it a lot easier. Sabrina Ionescu is the headliner here tonight. So happy to have you with us, Adam, me, and Rebecca Lobo. Rebecca, we've talked about this for the last couple of weeks. One of the great players in the country is starting to become one of the greatest players ever to play. And now Rebecca is giving me her answer, and I'm listening to Rebecca. I might look back to my buddy who's sitting there and read, yeah, this makes sense. Like kind of yeah. almost like you're confirming like what the person next to you is saying. Mm -hmm. and, and it just makes it easier to look at my partner who's talking about something that I think is important. And it helps, it, it probably gets people's eyes off of you True. and transitions. Like your eyes are what people are gonna typically look at when you come on camera. You're talking, I'm going to look at your face, which may lead me to look at your suit or your hair or, whatever else distracts me. But eventually when you're talking about something, I'm looking in your eyes and when your eyes turn to your partner, guess what happens to me sitting on the couch? My eyes start to move to your partner and now when they start talking, I'm automatically engaged with what they're saying. And when you realize that that's the mechanical aspect and you don't even have to think about that, just doing it like a human being will get all this, this kind of subliminal and psychological messaging over to the person who's watching you when you realize that you're you, you don't have to do the machinations you just do it it becomes a little bit more of a comfortable experience so i hope i know there's a lot of layers to that but i hope that's something that makes sense to you guys absolutely and final one for me adam uh you mentioned not scripting out opens but when it comes to telling stories on television do you have bullet points? Do you, do you have just such a, a good memory where you're able to talk to somebody and just feed from the head and what they had said in that conversation that you had to shoot around that morning? Or uh, how do you structure telling stories so there is a beginning, there's a middle, and then there's the ultimate end? Yeah, I think, and I think it's depending on the medium as well. So this is a radio uh, board I have from a few years back. This is from a, a Colts-Steelers uh, game that I had called. And I'm looking actually just to see if I can find something uh, fairly quick. Uh, so uh, I don't know if this would this would fall into this category, but Corey Redding. Corey Redding was the starting defensive end for the Colts at that point. And in his box on his board, here's what I have. Uh, Corey Redding, 90, 6'4", 12th Texas, uh, un, uh, unrestricted free agent, Baltimore, 2012. Uh, the top line in Corey Redding's section says Robert Mathis out suspended first four games, then suffered torn Achilles during personal workout first week of September. So that's a headline. And but but I'm giving you this as something you can use for stories as well. Uh, that's a trigger for me. 
So I, I, in that case, I'm able to give you the sentence that I would say to introduce the idea. Uh, on radio, I may only need the opening sentence because that's really that really might be all you have time for to to give. But that's an important thing, and you need to know. Robert Mathis is a you know one of the great defensive ends in Colts history. He's hurt, and I need to make sure that if Corey Redding makes a play, that's the headline for Corey Redding. And that's what's important, and that's what sticks out. And I think any other layers that you have, if I were to do a TV broadcast for that, I would probably have my iPad with me and something I started doing this year. And, and, a, and a lot of people would have typed this out or written it, you know, handwritten it in their notes. For me, I just happen to do it in my iPad, and I use a program now just to have it in one place. You know, it's more streamlined for me. But I'll have a lot of trigger lines in a lot of these um, – boxes in my prep work and then i'll either have something that's fresh in my head that i can add to it that i may have gotten from the coach uh, the prior day uh maybe if it's basketball and i had something like that it would be something i got from shoot around that morning or something you get from the batting cages to add like if i'm prepping for an mlb game i may have like the headline for aaron judge but if i see him at the batting cage and i ask him about it well, this may be the third day that he's dealing with an injury, and he might tell me a story about what the trainer did after day two and now how he's feeling great today. Well, I didn't put that in my notes, but I can certainly type it into my iPhone or write it down on a notepad and take it upstairs and have it ready to go for that game. So that's the second layer. So that's my iPad for a college football game. I have the second and third layers of the stories that we often get in the meeting with the player or the coach themselves, or maybe the day of the game, the story in the local paper, the the feature comes out, and now I have like real depth to that. I don't need to jam all that into my on my board day of game, but if I've got the trigger in there, and I know a place where I can flesh out that story, awesome. The other thing I'll say is, especially anecdotal stuff, I would say that um, I do try to type things out in a way that I would basically say it verbatim. Like if I can type it out how I'd want to say it, which means you have to say it out loud or at least say it in your head or type it out and delete it and retype it because the wording's better or whatever. That's something that I, I realized that I, I didn't know I was doing it, but I realized I was doing more and more of that. And I was trying to almost visualize or I guess hear out loud how I'd want to tell this story or at least the first couple lines to introduce the story. So I feel like if I don't give you anything beyond these one or two lines, you still have an idea about this person. You still have an idea about the story. In a modern era, one of the luxuries is a lot of people are sitting on their couch with their phone watching the game, and if they hear a story and only the first couple lines, they might Google it, and they might learn something, and you were the person that introduced them to that. So maybe if you didn't even give them the whole thing or, or the real meat of it, because let's say a play happens, an interception happens, and now you can't tell the story about the wide receiver anymore, but you got those first couple lines in, at least they have an understanding of, of the, the, the gist. And now they can explore on their own in this modern era that people are watching sports in. Adam, we know we kept you over an hour, so we uh, certainly appreciate all the time you've given us today on Broadcaster Hour. Just uh, on our way out the door, uh, we'll kind of turn it over to you to kind of use as maybe a commencement speech to all these young broadcasters that are watching. Just what are your main words of advice? What would you say about the next steps they need to take? 
Yeah, again, this is a strange time. It's not the first time that people are dealing with this economically. I'm sure it's the first time that a lot of people are dealing with this socially. Uh, understandable. Uh, so it's a strange... Understand that this is a messed up time, not only in like the industry, this is a strange time in human history. So like understand and have the perspective that this is a lot bigger than just what we like to do. Um, something I've taken away from the last five or six weeks is how non-essential we are in a lot of ways uh, in what we do in sports. You know, like we're all kind of, we're all alive and functioning without sports and we're dealing with it be as best as we can. So in a lot of ways, it's not essential because we're still functioning. But what I also recognized in the last five or six weeks is something that's given me a little bit more of an appreciation for the job that we do is that like culturally, sports drives so much of the conversation for so many people. And it's an entry point into conversation for a lot of people. So when it's not there and it's not happening, it does like. You, you feel it. You feel the absence of it, especially if you're in the industry. The further in, you know, entrenched you are, and naturally, the more you're going to feel it. But it, it touches so much of our culture. So in that, in that sense, we're a lot more essential than maybe we realized. And in the coming months, you know, if we do start to bring sports back with no fans or in a limited release or whatever it may be or staggered times or what, you know, whatever it is, your job is that much more important now. Your job is to be accurate. Your job is to be informative. You try to entertain, especially in these times when, you know, things are, uh, you know, people are looking for an escape, certainly. And sports can, you know, whether it's old games or stuff that we're talking about now, it can be an escape for people. Uh, it's a lot more essential than maybe we even realized uh, before as well. So take pride in that. Take pride in doing the job. Uh, understand that, you know, the, again, the, the, the thing I, I said earlier about being a marathon, not a sprint, you know, a very cliche, I understand. It's a very fitting cliche, and I'm going to continue to use it until it's not fitting anymore. And I'm looking forward to the day where we can focus on the sprint rather than the marathon. But right now, it's important to realize that this is a small portion of time in what is hopefully a long arc uh, of a career for you. And, you know, the, the hope and the goal is that in 2040, you're looking back 20 years ago and say, man, that was a weird year, right? And then that's all that that's all there, that, that there is to it. You hope that it's nothing more than a historical footnote for each person individually. I know that's not the case for a lot of people, but you hope that that is, that is the case. So uh, having the big picture perspective of all that, having pride in what you do, having appreciation for the job itself because of the non-essentiality and the essentiality of it, uh, I, I hope you can take that away and you can understand that for however long this portion of time does go. I know it's a weird and scary time for a lot of people, uh, whether it's just the uncertainty of jobs or uh, their you know, enjoyment or their lifestyle, whatever. Uh, this is a, hopefully for all of us, it's a small blip of, uh, you know, blip on the radar in a long arc. Adam, you're one of the best and brightest in the business. We certainly thank you for your time. Uh, maybe we'll have you down the road because we still have a lot of things uh, we certainly love to pick your brain about. But thank you for your insights. We really appreciate your time today. Uh, Roger, Kyle, thank you guys. Uh, always good to talk to you guys about this stuff. It's uh, nice to get our minds off of uh, the other stuff and, and focus on things that uh, you know we'll all look forward to coming down the line. Thanks, Adam. Yes. All right. All the best to Adam Mean. We certainly thank him for joining us and thank you for watching this episode of Broadcaster Hour. If you missed it live, we will have it archived on YouTube, available in podcast form as well. So long, everyone.